That was a, what a good prayer. It's like uh, I. This is kind of weird. I actually came from a. I was at one, for some time in a really beautiful Christian tradition, but they had this weird thing about well, if you don't make up a prayer on the fly, it's not a good prayer. You have to just freestyle every time. And like what I love about when other people write prayers for others to pray or collaborate on prayers is it knits hearts together, sometimes across centuries' time. And this idea that it, it tells us that we're part of something greater than what we even see here, that we're part of a witness, of a tradition, of people across cultures, language. We're talking about time traveling here and everything. And the, the thing about that is there's also something beautiful about submitting to the words of another person. And I actually discovered praying prayers and actually praying scriptures during a, probably one of my greatest times of desolation like in struggle about uh, 20 some years ago. And uh, it was, uh, my brain was so addled, more than normal, it was kind of like a blender going around and I just had so much anxiety that the only way I could possibly pray, I couldn't be silent because m my head was like all this sadness about things were just going on nonstop in my head. So even if I was quiet, my brain was shouting at me. So that wasn't even available to me, but what was available to me is I could read words, and I had like a, a book of common prayer on my Palm Pilot. Anyone remember Palm Pilots? Before smartphones? We thought they would be the new thing forever. Um, I had a book of common prayer on my Palm Pilot, and the only way for about two years I could pray was reading prayers. And it just changed my life, so anyway, that's kind of a, that's a good, healthy rabbit trail, just commentary on what Rachel was doing there. But uh, my name's Jeff, one of the pastors here, and that was Adrian, my wife, who did the child presentation, and I love that because I, I want you guys to know, a lot of times we have kids in the service, and that's actually part of our liturgy. Just know the liturgy means work of the people, and part of this idea is I had a daughter who never wanted to go into Sunday school until she was like six years old. And so uh, we were at uh, Vineyard Columbus, and they had speakers on the outside, so Adrian would just be chilling out, or I would, and we'd be in the stroller, and we had this, one individual would come up to us, if you don't get her used to Sunday school, she'll never want to be at church. And, uh, which is kind of funny, because she works at a church now. So all that to say is, I think it's a reminder that even if your, your child isn't verbal, they're a part of our worship service, and they are part of the work of the people. So uh, it may not be super podcast-friendly when they make noise, but so what? Uh, that's, so I just wanted to encourage uh, you that way. And I always like to repeat that, something like that along the lines on a dedication Sunday, because the kids are not the future church. They are the church right now. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so last week, um, we talked about like, the idea of sharing Jesus stories and being storytellers of our, the impact Jesus has had on our life, and specifically dealt with issues that make us hesitant to even talk about Jesus or to come out of the closet as a follower of Jesus, so to speak. You know, there's a lot of super understandable hesitance in doing that. You know, and we talked about different issues, and you know, one, the one that always comes to my mind first is like all the people that do terrible things in the name of Jesus, in particular in our country, 
and the Crusades and stuff like that. You know, it's like the people who do on Jesus-y things in the name of Jesus. But specifically wanted to talk about how our tendency towards shame is, I think we have this inner voice of condemnation, many of us, not everyone, where we expect a level of performance that Jesus failed to attain. Because we're under this myth that if we do everything right, we can make a relationship work. If we do everything right, we can make a relationship work. And that's where I think the Bible said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, or peace achievers. You can work towards making peace, but it's a collaborative effort, and not everyone can do that. And I think a lot of people feel if they're part of a failed communication or failed relationship, it's because they failed. And the fact that Jesus demonstrated these massive, explosive acts of compassion and would teach people, and still at the end, the religious elite basically said all these spectacular acts of compassion and healing, and they said those acts of compassion were sourced demonically. And these guys are scholars. I mean, you know, the idea that you would say, okay, demons sometimes do compassionate things. I mean, that's just weird. I mean, try to think of watching Hellraiser and thinking that those movies always end in those pinhead and everyone engaging in acts of compassion. It just doesn't work, or whatever. I don't know what the modern good demon movies are, but uh, um, if you want to, you can fill me in. I guess Pope's Exorcist is supposed to be pretty good. Is that good? I haven't seen it. You know, I've been watching old Thunder of the Barbarian reruns. On uh. Anyway, um, well, the passage today continues along this theme where Jesus does all this cool stuff. Last, yesterday, last week's reading, and this week, he lets us play. So I'd like to invite our readers up and remember to introduce yourself. I want to try to get names associated with people here. Good morning, I'm June. And I'm Chris. This is a reading from Matthew 9, verses 35 through Matthew 10, 15. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. He healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Here are the names of the 12 disciples. First, Simon, also called Peter. Then Andrew, Peter's brother. James, son of Zebedee. John, James's brother. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Acarius, who later betrayed him. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. Don't take any money in your money belts, no gold, silver, or even copper coins. 
Don't carry a traveler's bag with a change of clothes and sandals or even a walking stick. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve to be fed. Whenever you enter a city or village, search for a worthy person and stay in his home until you leave town. When you enter the home, give it your blessing. If it turns out to be a worthy home, let your blessing stand. If it is not, take back the blessing. If any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, shake its dust from your feet as you leave. I tell you the truth, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than such a town on the judgment day. This is the word of the Lord. Basically, not welcoming the healing presence of Jesus is like, uh, if we ever have any hospitality, welcoming Je- the best thing we can ever do is welcome Jesus in our lives through people, through his message bearers, and through the vulnerable. And it, the, the risk of not making space for love in our lives is just devastating here. And I wanted to talk about, continue our idea of being story, Jesus' storytellers. And when I think of storytelling, it's not just sitting down and reading a book, which is good, but a lot, the best storytellers kind of act out what they're doing with voices, or I imagine times I've seen Carl dress up as a bard, or any chance to cosplay, Carl is there. I mean, I still want to see the Gimli suit sometime, but when he tells stories and is at speakeasy, those speakeasies where people craft the art of storytelling, it's walking and almost acting out the story. And the gospel is not four truths that we argue people into believing and repeating and checkmarking box. The gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel is the whole story of Jesus, Lord, and King, who invaded a hostile planet with love and invites us to receive restoration, acceptance, kindness, renovation, healing, and all the ways he did that, whether speaking words of truth, stories of truth, the call to loyalty, say no matter who is king or the reigning political party, wherever you live, whether you're under a dictator or a democracy, wherever you are, you're a royalist to the God of love. You're a royalist to the God of love. And it gives us a very simple like Christian identity because a lot of talk sometimes about national identity is you don't need to sort that out if you fill it all with your identity in Christ. By the way, Christian identity as a phrase has been co-opted by some of the greatest forces of evil in the world. Uh, so don't, that's probably not the nomenclature we should use. Or either that or steal it back. You know, uh, what's that? Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles. We're here to steal it back, helter skelter. So maybe we can take back the term Christian identity or Jesusness, Jesusiness. That's another thing. So um, this um, begins, I just want to reread one verse here because I think this is for us. I guess before I read it, like, something struck me as so profound, and this is one of those things that can always be true, but I felt like today it was especially true about those gathered today, because, you know, we have a lot of people call this home, but when people show up at what weeks and stuff like that is all different, especially in the summer, 
I felt specifically for our gathering today that there is a lot of hidden sorrow. That there is a lot of hidden sorrow. And we all know that no one gets through this life story unscathed. Everyone's got scar tissue. Sometimes you're able to dress in such a way that you hide your scar tissue. Some people's scar tissue is unavoidably visible to people. But I felt specifically today that some of you are struggling with a hidden sorrow that maybe very few people know about or maybe something you've been hesitant to open up to another person, sometimes for very good reason. I mean, how many of you have opened up a hidden sorrow to someone and had it explode in your face? <laughs> you know, if I were an octopus, maybe that would work. But, this idea, but the idea is we encounter the vulnerable Savior in our vulnerability. We encounter the vulnerable Savior in our vulnerability. You know, it's amazing how a lot of this uh, tough guy spirituality, Jesus and John Wayne stuff, has co-opted spiritual formation. When spiritual formation, the gateway to all formation is a path of gentleness. The gateway to all formation is a path of gentleness. And you're talking to a guy that has a pretty fiery spirit here, and I married someone who's a supernova. You know, and the path of spiritual formation is the quiet way. It's a way through silence and mindfulness of the love of Jesus. You know, it isn't, it's not because our temperament is naturally that way. You know, well, that works for you because it's because, because of the way Adrian and I are wired, we need it even more, actually. But in the area of secret hidden sorrow, I want you to hear what Jesus sees when he looks at a crowd of people. And there's... I call this the maternal heart of Jesus because in one passage Jesus says, oh, I feel like a mama chicken, the one that get all these little chicks that are getting ready to run in front of a freight liner truck and gather my wings around them and protect them, you know? And this is another one of those like tender love of Jesus uh, passages. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd, by the way, they die. They die. Sheep are dumb. Without a shepherd, I don't know how sheep eventually evolved into these creatures that are virtually incompetent about everything, but they are. You ever see a sheep that doesn't get sheared for a while? Talk about mats. They're worse than poodles. Uh, sheep without a shepherd is probably at that time in that region, there was no greater word picture of pathetic, helpless vulnerable creatures. And I love what Jesus looked at the crowds. You know, I can look at crowds and I can see individuals I can connect with or I can say, oh man, that person looks like they're suffering. But Jesus was so brilliant and wise and knowledgeable about human nature, he could look at everyone and see everyone is confused somewhere. Everyone is suffering somewhere. And I can't imagine what a burden that must have been. You know, they talk about Jesus as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And that idea that Jesus sees sorrow with a clarity we can't imagine. And I, and I don't think, right, there's no shame in not having that capacity of Jesus. It, I mean, Jesus also had an intimate relationship with God the Father that gave him the sole resource to see suffering that most of us do not have a brain pan that would accommodate it. You know, one of the difficulties of an online world is we're more aware of the vastness of human suffering than anyone in recorded history. 
Um, I mean, the Reddit forums on what war is going on where are just a, a video atrocity exhibition. And we can only take so much. And I would argue, without living the lifestyle of Jesus every day, silence, away from people, with God, Jesus who engages the crowd had cultivated a lifelong practice of silence and solitude. And even then, like, his heart is breaking. If you do not hear when you imagine Jesus, if you don't hear a words of compassion through a heart that is breaking, not because of disappointment in you, but because you're suffering. If you, every time, every word of Christ, you need to hear almost in a hoarse voice of someone who's been crying over what their child has suffered in their speaking words of tender hope. That is the voice of Jesus. Not the, not the voice, the voice I, I could see Jesus shouting a few times, like not letting people worship in the temple because they set up a mini mall to keep other ethnic groups out of the temple. Yeah, Jesus uh, does a little bit of creative remodeling by throwing tables around. Or I can imagine when they're getting ready to stone this woman, Jesus like standing in between them. I could see Jesus going into loud mode. Could you? Because that's what a compassionate person would do. Um, but when we talk about being storytellers of Jesus, compassion is the root of everything. Fear cannot be the root. Trying to make God love you. If God loves you perfectly, then sorted, done. You don't need to do anything to earn God's approval. The idea, and there was an old uh, uh, pastor in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, that said this, sharing our, I'm paraphrasing a little, sharing our Jesus story is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. There is no room for moral superiority in sharing our Jesus stories. We're someone, you know, imagine like you're one of those people celebrating 10 years free of cancer, and you're grateful and you're celebrating uh, with other people uh, at the James Hospital. You maybe have a reunion for people that were in chemo with you or something. You're like, I'm 10 years cancer free. You're not saying, yeah, I'm cancer free. Look at you. You still have cancer. You're not as good as me. I'm cancer. Yeah. That's how we have to look at our shortcomings, sins, failures, failures to love. We look at those, we don't say, we never get to the point where we don't see ourselves as a cancer survivor that's been healed versus someone who's moral superior. And that begins with the compassion of Christ. It isn't fear. Fear motivates people objectifying others, whether you're afraid of them or you, need, you think they're objects you need to place from this place to that place. And a lot of well-intentioned people in the name of sharing about Jesus see people as objects to conquer or, you know, notches in the bedpost or on the gun belt or something. There's almost like this uh, frat boy uh, accomplishment model. How many, how many conquests have you made versus have you been able to give some people the food that God has given you? And that's so beautiful. So I, I know big passage, one word, compassion. And when I think about sharing our Jesus stories here, we need to have a harvest field mentality. You know, storytellers who are compassionate have a set of eyes that are more open to human suffering than they would otherwise be. You don't want, want them open too wide. God's not going to give you this you know, freight train of suffering to kill you. In fact, some of you 
take ownership of certain levels of suffering beyond what Jesus would ever want you to do. Because Jesus wants you to flourish too. I know some of you guys are just such great caregivers, but you go too far sometimes thinking, I can fix this if. I'm not talking for us. So if you're one of those people, hear me about Jesus' compassion for you in wanting you not to flail around life. But a harvest field mentality is believing that Jesus has something for everyone. That Jesus has something for everyone. Not Christianity has something for everyone. That Jesus has something for everyone. The reason I say that is you don't need to be a scholar or a theologian to grasp Jesus. You need to listen to or read the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and do the best to compose that movie in your mind. Just remember, if Jesus doesn't seem compassionate, your, your movie's jacked. You need to imagine the most compassionate picture you can have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the harvest mentality saying, this person who most of us believe is exactly what God is like. God manifest in human form looks like compassion, not like Zeus. You know, a lot of people pretend to be Christian ministers who really represent the Greco-Roman pantheon, where it's Odin or Zeus sending punishment or thunder or lightning down on people, and they say it's Jesus. That's not Jesus. Uh, I remember his disciple said, hey, you want to call down fire on these people? And Jesus is like, dude, stop. Let's rewind here a bit. Um, but having a harvest field mentality is to know that every suffering you have is probably common to many more people than you realize. Everywhere suffering has hit your life is probably common to more people than you realize. You know, I'm, I'm in a unique position to know a lot of pain of a lot of people in a lot of detail that most people don't know. And I can't, you wouldn't be able to fathom how many people have suffered rejection, betrayal, physical abuse, sexual abuse. You, you couldn't even, you just couldn't conceive of how more common, whatever the statistics are, it's bigger. You know, people who have been disenfranchised, people that have been victims of race hatred, people who have been excluded and not welcome to share in the body and the blood of Jesus. You know, the nourishment of Jesus' unconditional love for us. Any way you've experienced being an exile, uh, you know, almost like a spiritual refugee where you felt homeless, know that there's so many people there, and one of the best things you can do for them is experience God's love and let it spill over. You know, if God gives us living water, I think he calls us to have shaky little hands so we spill our cup everywhere it goes. You know, this, uh, it's to be shared. So the harvest field mentality isn't like this spreadsheet. We need to witness to X amount of people every day or we must not care about their eternal destiny. Da, 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 da. No, love does so much more. The Holy Spirit, when you fall in love with people, when you have a, we can literally all have a mother or father's heart towards almost anyone if we allow God to see, to imagine that there's a story behind the story. Imagine there's a story. This unsavory person who gets on your last, there's a story behind the story that you don't know. And I, I think we, all of us, could grow in that. But the harvest field mentality is Jesus has something for everyone. But there's no way to really talk about that unless Jesus has something for you.
We can't give what we haven't received. That's why I think a lot of times uh, there's this kind of manic glee when people start following Jesus, which is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. But you don't live, it's kind of like you, your honeymoon, newlywed honeymoon, isn't the place you live life every day of the week for the next 70 years, or like 28 years for me. It's, that, newly, that is an initiation, and there's this glee, but at the idea is that kind of kickstarts a journey of very slow formation. But part of that glee can kickstart us, and I want to know everything there is to know about this. And just know, when we want to do, uh, there's something like one-year or two-year Bible programs, Jesus spent 24-7, except when he would ghost on them, 24-7 with 12 camping buddies for three years, and their lack of knowledge was astounding at the end of those three years. Jesus failed as a teacher then. You really should have had principles one, principles two, principle three, and if you're not there, blah, blah, blah. It's like three years, it's like, Jesus, um, we just been wanting to talk to you, first of all, we think the people you've selected aren't really the most responsive and the most zealous that you've spoken. One of them, I think you got to watch this guy. I think he might be an embezzler. This other guy, he might even go back to the terrorist group and you got to Jesus, we love your heart, Jesus. We love your heart. But really, you need to think practically about who you recruit to do this work because it takes a certain kind of person. And we see this passage of this, you know, any, anyone who's over 50 would remember the sweat hogs and welcome back Cotter. You know, the, the class for all the disruptive kids. Jesus' disciples were the sweat hogs in that show. Or, it was the, or on TV tropes, they were the ragtag bag of misfits. They were, you know, whatever. Every, almost every hero story is getting a bunch of losers together and somehow they conquer evil. You know, this deal that... Um, it's interesting, in this passage, it shows the people charged to be compassionate, compassionate liver elders. We see the list of the people that got this commission. And uh, Jesus specifically says, don't go to the Gentiles. Now, not because Jesus is a, a Jewish supremacist. Jesus is like, dude, start where you live. Start where you live. I've seen the opposite play out where a lot of people want to go on mission trips because no one knows them there, so they can go out there and share Christ and do whatever mime ministries of showing people Bible stories, being a mime. Or there used to be, they actually used to have people go on mission trips and dress up like clowns. Clown ministry, have you ever heard, anyone ever heard of this? Someone, Adrian, whenever Adrian would hear like some really programmatic way of sharing the gospel, she was, oh, that sounds like clown ministry. Now, maybe that was really awesome. I bet you one day clowns used to make kids laugh pre-John Wayne Gacy, but now it's not very culturally helpful. Um, but the harvest the compassion of Jesus is one where we receive the compassion of Jesus and then we share what Jesus has done for us. You know, not taking credit for making it through that rough patch of your marriage. Sure, Jesus partners with us, but, you know, my Jesus stories are not just Jesus stories. They're Jesus and me stories. When I talk about Jesus, I endeavor to talk about, man, uh, Adrian and I, you know, 10 years in our marriage hit an extraordinary rough patch. And we didn't know how to sort out how we related to our, our greater families and our family and how we would get through issues and how we'd even communicate things we disagree with. And here's 
how Jesus helped us. Here's how Jesus was Savior in that instant. Here's how Jesus helped me to be wrong and be blatantly admitting I'm wrong, that I once was lost in this specific area, now I'm found. Jesus' story is being loved in your wrongness so you can get out of your wrongness. You know, your Jesus story is where have you been hungry for wisdom, healing, deliverance? Where have you been hungry and where did you get the food hookup and what did that do to you? The Jesus story is like, you know, uh, if you're walking day by day in freedom from a chemical addiction, every day is a Jesus story for you. Every day of sobriety, you know, I love uh, a number of people get the coins and say how many days, but realize every day is a party as far as Jesus is concerned. Every day you walk in sobriety and freedom is a party. In that day you don't walk in sobriety, Jesus' heart breaks and he jumps in the pit and he says, can I help you out? And then every day is a party. Amen. That is the compassion of Jesus. And that is the stories we share. I, you don't just share the Jesus story, you share your Jesus story. And the reason I, I really believe this is these disciples were thin on knowledge. They didn't know about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus yet. Even when he talked about insinuated, they're like, nah, 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 not hearing it. All they had to share as they prayed for people and they got set free from demons or prayed for people and they were healed from leprosy. All they had to share is, we know a guy. We met this guy. We've all been hoping for someone to set us free and there's someone doing it in the weirdest of ways. Let me show you. Let me pray for you. Jesus hugged lepers and did long distance healed for noble people. You know, Jesus hugged. I mean, can you imagine what his one outfit looked like? Hugging lepers. I'm just thinking, like, it probably wasn't that great. Um, they didn't have any good dry cleaners back then. Um, but compassion, when infected with compassion, you tell stories where you receive compassion to people that need compassion. That is what it is to share the gospel of Jesus. And if you don't know much, that's fine. If you don't want to win an argument about anything, even better. Just give away what you've received, and there's no shame in not knowing. And don't think you have to have certainty. They invented certainty in what, 18 or 17? When does the Enlightenment start? Come on, historian. Anyone? In the 1700s, they invented certainty. Before that, you had assurance. You know, you had assurance, which is a relational being, sense of being, like a kid has with the parents, not, I empirically know that I exist because, well, Descartes solved it, and I, whatever. Sorry, that was. So compassionate stories, tellers, start where you live. Start where you live. And these guys were commissioned to go out into the entire world, but you know, you're, the life you live, it, you know, these are the people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, the family you get to, the extended family you have dinner with once a week, your peeps, your theater group, the, the people who are, uh, you know, play pickleball with you while you damage your knees for all ever. Uh, you know, I just heard that that's really bad for your knees. Be careful. Um, you know, well, your CrossFit team, uh, your, your rug-making team, June. I mean, these are your people. That is your Jerusalem. And just being real. And guess what? It's freaky to be real, and people may act like it's freaky, but guess who they're going to talk to when that cycle of you-know-what comes out and the you-know-what hits the fan? Guess who they're going to be most apt to talk about? The together person or the freaky vulnerable person? 
you know, ne- you know, I love this even in, in, in leading, trying to lead in Christ. There's that phrase that gets bandied around our fellowship laws. Never trust a leader who isn't limping. You know, this isn't like, uh, you know, one of these inspirational business leader speakers like Tom Cruise and Magnolia, you know, going like just, Alyssa. we're wounded healers. Um, I'm just, in tying this up, we give what we got. We discover our Jesus stories. I just want to lead you in a, a moment of silent imagination prayer. And what I want you to do, and not everyone's going to be able to do this, by the way. If your mind's going to race to everything you have to do after the service eventually gets out, please let it be soon, God. That's okay. No condemnation. But if you're able to, just receive it as a grace. Like everyone to kind of close their eyes, bow their heads, just uh, if that helps you beyond distracted. And I'll pray, come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you know, I prayed earlier, you know, enkindle the hearts of the faithful, God. But I would say, enkindle, set a fire on our imagination and our recollection, God. When is the time, God, when is the time that I was suffering or confused that you came through for me and were present to me? What is the time that I was restless, confused, and suffering where I felt you near, where you provided? This might even go to childhood, folks. Think about when you've seen Jesus' compassion. I want to spend about a minute here and just letting, see if any minds can wander in that direction. Amen. Well, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise hands or anything if you were able to have something pop into your mind. I'm going to just ask actually worship folks to come up. Um, But I want you to think, that's your piece to somehow share that with someone else. If something came to mind, that's that's one, maybe one of many of your Jesus stories and maybe you're called to reenact that story on behalf of someone else. Or maybe to share that story and offer a prayer for someone. That's part of your riches. That's, part, that's, the, that's the food you receive that you still have plenty of it in your pantry to give away to others. And it's okay to be weird as long as it's a loving weirdness. If it's not loving... It's a bad weird. 
Uh, friends, let's, let's stand. Um, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper in a minute, and that, that is where the beggar found food. If we can have our, our communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, whatever tradition you have, I like all the names, never been able to land on one. How's that for ecumenism? Uh, ecumenism or ecumen? Um, we're going to invite you to come forward and receive uh, the Lord's Supper. And the idea is this, we're all hungering. We're all hungry for the indwelling of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're all, we all have spiritual bodies, also physical bodies, spiritual bodies. We all have spirits that need to be fortified by Jesus' indwelling as we are, we get to become like Jesus, the humble Savior. So we, whether you've got this much faith or a ton of faith, whether Whatever your skepticism ratio is on a scale of 1 to 14.5, whatever your faith ratio is on a scale of 1 to 13, whatever you have, you're welcome to come up to the table, give it to Jesus, and allow him to come into you. There's nothing magic here, but there's something when a whole community around the world doing this engages in something where they're saying, please, I need a meal. I need you, Jesus. And I want to pray a blessing on you. So, Father God, you've given me some of the most compassionate friends anyone has in the world in this room of people, God. How rich it is, God. I pray, God, that you would bring people to mind, that you would bring an acuity to a vision for confusion and suffering and a heart to vulnerably share, to speak of you, Jesus. Bless these people, and specifically, God, bless those that are suffering something in silence right now, God. And I pray, God, just for the tiniest impartation, just enough courage to seek prayer today, to seek prayer in their area of suffering. We're going to come up, and we're going to sing a version of an ancient confession of sin, but I, if you don't get the first line, please don't sing any part of the other part of it. You know, if you can't pray to a merciful God, if you have a different picture of God, I recommend not praying to that God. It's a dangerous God. But we pray most merciful God, we confess. He can take everything you throw at him. Most merciful God. Hey, let's all repeat that together verbally. Most merciful God. That is Jesus. God looks exactly like Jesus. So we're going to come up, sing the song, share communion. Like, if we could have people to pray around the sides. Also, look around here. Think if you need prayer. Is there someone here I would trust to pray for me? It doesn't have to be someone that's on the sides. Is there someone here I could stand a chance to ask to pray for me? And get that. Oh, you guys are awesome. Bless you. <laughs>